subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. It's a new episode of Subtitle. A new season, too. And, Kavi, I have a new question. A question that I am guessing you've never been asked before. Oh, okay. Okay, here goes. When I say John Wayne, what comes to mind? A cowboy hat, black and white film, toxic masculinity. (laughs) Do I need to go on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was a big star, the star of Westerns, when Westerns were, you know, a big genre. I don't like quitters, especially when they're not good enough to finish what they start. I go on, speak up. Say it and you can join your friends here. Maybe less revered for his acting prowess and more for, you know, a certain type of belief system. Like there was good, there was evil. You couldn't really distinguish between the two. But, you know, John Wayne would do it for you. And he'd throw in a few punches along the way. I think of them out there in the Wild West making all of his kind of moral decisions as as Mr. Manifest Destiny. Oh, God. (laughs) There's right and there's wrong. You got to do one or the other. You do the one and you're living. You do the other and you may be walking around, but you're dead as a beaver hat. It's probably no great surprise to you that he was an outspoken conservative Republican. No surprise. A little bit more surprising, at least to me, was that he really hated a certain punctuation mark, the hyphen. Oh. The hyphen, Webster's Dictionary defines, is a symbol used to divide a compound word or a single word. This is John Wayne speaking in the early 1970s. So it seems to me that when a man calls himself an Afro-American, a Mexican-American, Italian-American, Irish-American, Jewish-American. What he's saying is, I'm a divided American. Just to give you a bit of context here, Wayne's friend Richard Nixon, he was the president. The country was still reeling from the 1960s, the Vietnam War, the March on Washington, the counterculture, assassinations, all kinds of turmoil. And so John Wayne's response to all of this was to record this album called America, Why I Love Her. And this is one of the tracks, the hyphen. Well, we all came from other places, different creeds, different races, to form a nation, to become as one. Yet look at the harm a line has done. A simple little line, and yet as divisive as a line can get. Crooked cross, the Nazis flew, and the Russian hammer and sickle, too. Time bombs in the lives of men. But none of these could ever fan the flames of hatred faster than the hyphen. So John Wayne is saying that the hyphen is a more divisive and hateful symbol than the Nazi use of the swastika and the hammer and sickle? Yeah. And the thing is, he's not alone in in having these like extreme strong feelings about the hyphen. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle. Stories about languages and the people who speak them. I'm Kavita Pillay. 
And I'm Patrick Cox. Does the hyphen divide, as John Wayne would have it, or does it unite? And how did this little horizontal line become so loved and so loathed? When I'm in the United States, I introduce myself as Pardis Madhavi. When I'm in Iran, I pronounce my name Pardis Mahdavi. But the pronunciation of my name that I dislike the most is Pardis Mandavi. Pardis is the daughter of Iranian immigrants, which makes her Iranian-American. Iranian-American. You know, my parents initially came to the United States in the early 1970s. They actually met here. They met in Chicago. Uh, my father was a resident at the University of Chicago, and my mother was an aspiring college student trying to figure out where she fit in. It took a while, that fitting in. Pardis's parents got married, but they returned to Iran to do that. And there, there was revolution in the air. Constant street protests, violence, martial law. The Shah of Iran's pro-Western regime was teetering. And my parents had this sense of, do we stay and fight? Do we go? And when my mom became pregnant with me, at one point she was actually arrested. And I think my father decided at that point, look, Let's just get out of here for a little bit until things calm down. And so they left Iran and moved back to the U.S., to Minnesota this time. That's where Padi spent her early years with her family, including her grandmother, who'd say things like, I'm leaving America. She'd actually say that most days. Padis didn't know any different, of course, but it was clear that the family were far from settled. My family always had a bag packed. There, were, there was always, you know, a suitcase packed in the corner, ready to go back to Iran. And, you know, my parents always would say, well, okay, well, when we go back or when things change, when, when things become different, when we go back. And so they didn't really have that sense of permanence until we were much older. And, you know, for them, they very much saw themselves as Iranian, but living in America. But, you know, for my brothers and I, it was a very different experience and a very different existence. The children would listen in on their parents' discussions about the mullahs who were now running Iran, and then later about the war with Iraq that was decimating the country. Iran sounded like a total mess. They didn't want to move there. But at the same time in the U.S., Iranians had become the enemy, the hostage crisis, the Iran-Contra scandal. And so my brothers and I were very aware that we were not wanted here in this country. That came to a head when my brother and I came home from school one day and there was a sign and it said, burn this house, terrorists live here. My grandmother, till the day she died, never learned English. She was there, she opened the door, and she could not understand the sign. And so I read it out loud. And then I translated it for her, and her face just went completely white. And she called my father and said, you need to come home right now. Uh, you need to see this. That was really hard for us to get our heads around. My father's a doctor, he helps people. We're, you know, why, why, why are we being painted this way? And so we felt, well, we definitely don't belong here. And then we had our parents who were saying, well, we can't go back to Iran now. And, and so we had that sense of, okay, well, where are we supposed to be? My father decided then and there that we were gonna move to California. 
because he felt that it was no longer safe for his family, for us to be there in Minneapolis. A lot of exiled Iranians had moved to California. There were a lot more brown people there in general. So we moved to California, which was definitely better in many ways. But that suitcase was still packed in the corner of our house in, in San Diego. Pardis went to college and grad school in the U.S., but she was always curious about Iran. She traveled there on a series of research trips, and this is where her sense of living in the hyphen came into its own. In Iran, she felt a bit too American. You know, in my appearance or comportment, but also, you know, in what I had chosen to study, which was, you know, feminism and sexual revolution in Iran, which on the one hand was, you know, very exciting to the young people, you know, people my age that I met, but of course was less exciting to a regime who saw that as a threat and who saw me as somebody who might be trying to foment a revolution. Despite that, Pardis was permitted to do her research. She worked with UNESCO and the United Nations HIV AIDS program, and she found herself collaborating with Iranian government agencies. Together with officials there, she helped design a new school curriculum on sexual and reproductive rights. She realized she was helping Iran modernize. It was workable, she felt. It was at least until 2005. That's when Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was elected president of Iraq. The new guy wasn't a fan of the West. He wasn't a fan of women's rights. Suddenly, my research became very difficult. And as I was publishing more and more on my research, I, you know, became more and more heavily scrutinized. I was followed. My phone was tapped. My email was tapped. And then eventually, at a certain point, um, as I was in the midst of giving a lecture, I was uh, actually arrested. So, and... You know, then in 2007, I uh, was actually kicked out of Iran um, and stripped of my citizenship. So now, whether she liked it or not, Padis was no longer officially Iranian. But what did that make her? American? As in 100% American? Or something else? And that was really the moment where I realized, you know what? I- I have to live in that hyphen. That's where I'm going to have to live because I don't fit in either homeland. And there are a lot of hyphenated people like me. And so we can create our own homeland inside this tiny orthographic mark. After the break, who was the first person to use a hyphen? And what did it mean to them? Subtitle is a proud member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. We're a group of podcasters who tell stories about art, science, history, and of course, language. One of those podcasts is The Lonely Palette. Each episode takes you behind the scenes of one piece of art, whether it's American Gothic, a Rembrandt portrait, or Yoko Ono's cut piece. Even if you think you know everything about these works, host Tamar Avishai will tell you more. You can find The Lonely Palette and all of the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. With her interest in the hyphen fast becoming an obsession, Padis Madavi began researching 
the hyphen's origin story. Who, she wondered, coined it. Dionysus Thrax. Dionysus Thrax. What a name. That could be a character from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I know. know. Or like a glam rock band from the 1970s or something. (laughs) So, okay, so he was a Greek grammarian from the second century. Yes, and he was wandering the halls of the Alexandria Library and trying to figure out how he could get, because at the time, poems and essays that were written were actually sung. So instead of being read out loud, they were sung. And Dionysus Thrax was trying to figure out how can he indicate to the singers when there are two separate words that actually belong together. The, quote, hyphen he came up with didn't actually look like a hyphen at all. It was sublinear, meaning it appeared beneath the script line. And it was curved. It was used to show that two separate words had a connection with each other. And so the hyphen started as an orthographic mark to join, to bring together, to show that two words or concepts belonged together. So that was its debut. Over the centuries, the hyphen's usage ebbed and flowed, but it was generally used that way, to link words and ideas, to unite them. That is, until Celtic monks started using it in a very different way. The Celtic monks couldn't wrap their brains around this sublinear mark. They used the hyphen to divide. Words had gotten long and complex which was a problem for the monks because they were trying to popularize the Bible. Some words just needed splitting up. And so these monks, they set up the opposite way of using the hyphen. Instead of uniting, dividing. The centuries rolled on, at least in the way I'm telling this history. Some people used hyphens as prescribed by Dionysus Thrax to combine words and ideas. Others, like the monks, use them to break down overly long and compound words to divide them. Over time, we allowed for both in the language, which gave the hyphen an ambiguity. But that ambiguity opened it up to exploitation. Hyphenated American identities came into being sometime in the 19th century. It was only a matter of time before some politicians began questioning the loyalties of German-Americans or Irish-Americans. What did that hyphen mean exactly? President Theodore Roosevelt asked that question. Woodrow Wilson, too. And that carried over into World War II. So a hyphenated American is not an American. And that's when you had societies like the Japanese-American Society of America drop the hyphen to show that they did not have divided loyalties. Yeah, I just wonder... Was that enough for politicians who were sort of anti-hyphen? They didn't drop the word Japanese. And I would have thought initially the same as you, Patrick, but when I started to do this research, I found that the very public dropping of the hyphen from Japanese-American was seen as a statement and a symbol of, okay, we do not have divided loyalties. We are Americans. Other immigrant groups chose to drop the hyphen too, among them Chinese Americans, Italian Americans. These groups of immigrants and their children, it was as though they'd been liberated from the hyphen, from that bridge to another land, from their nostalgia, their first love. Without the hyphen, they were finally assimilated, unambiguously American. But the hyphen itself 
Was it used any differently, aside from these identity labels? Well, sort of. You saw the hyphen in some words, and then you didn't. So if you think about the trajectory of words, so a word like way station, okay? So way station used to be two words. Then it was way hyphen station for three decades. Then in 2006, the shorter Oxford English Dictionary came out and way station was just one word. So in this case, the hyphen acts as a, wait for the weird metaphorical coincidence, the hyphen acts as a way station to connect these two words. Two words morph into one hyphenated word. The hyphenated version of the word is a way station for 30 years until it drops the hyphen and becomes one word. Same thing with the word email. It started as two words, then was hyphenated, then it became a single word. It's as if the hyphen brings the words together, then silently edges out of the room. The words are assimilated into one. Except when they refuse to be. Ice cream used to be hyphenated. And then, well, dictionaries did drop the hyphen to reflect common usage, but the two words didn't become one. They remain, to this day, separate. Japanese Americans paved the way for hyphen dropping as a way of, quote, proving they're dissimilated. Others followed suit. But at the same time as that was going on, New immigrants were arriving. You have people like me, my family, Iranian-Americans, who come in the 70s. The hyphen comes back in. Ah, you can't get rid of it that easily. The question is, does the hyphen connect or divide? And initially, it comes back in to divide. That seems odd, until you realize who reinserted the hyphen into these newer immigrants' identities. It was actually immigration authorities who initially brought it back in. Immigration Authority put it in there to show, okay, these are new immigrants, and they are still considered divided, with divided loyalties. I see. So it's a way of saying they're not quite Americans yet. Correct. We're only going to drop the hyphen once they say the Pledge of Allegiance at their naturalization service. And that I take this obligation freely. We don't consider them Americans. They're hyphenated Americans. They've got to say the national anthem, etc., to drop that hyphen. Congratulations, you're America's newest citizens. So unassimilated newcomers get a hyphen, like some kind of warning sign. Watch out, they may be spies. The assumption being that at some assimilated point in the future, the hyphen will vanish. Presto, trustworthy. Well, that's not exactly how things turned out. This is the hyphen we're talking about. We don't agree on the hyphen. Here's what happened. Not long after Pardis's family came to America, some people, immigrants or their children, they said, okay, if you're going to force a hyphen on us, we'll take it. We'll run with it. People with hyphenated identities reclaim the hyphen. And they say, actually, no, this is meant to connect, not divide. And this is meant to connect to create something new to say, look, I'm not a type of American that is Japanese or a type of Americans that is Chinese, but I am Chinese American. I am African American. I am Iranian American. I am a different type of American. Because having that hyphen allows us to live in that hyphen. It was this renewed enthusiasm for the hyphen which John Wayne was objecting to. 
So you be wise in your decision, and that little line won't cause division. Let's join hands with one another. For in this land, each man's your brother. United we stand, divided we fall. We're Americans, and that says it all. As dated as John Wayne sounds, there are many Americans today who agree with him. You can find them on YouTube. Most are white men, but there are also people like Bobby Jindal. He was born in the U.S. to Indian immigrant parents, became governor of Louisiana, and then was briefly a Republican presidential candidate in 2016. I don't know about you, but I am tired of the hyphenated Americans. We are not African Americans. We're not Asian Americans. We're not rich Americans. We're not poor Americans. We're all Americans. And it's time to stand up to this nonsense. Other second-generation immigrants, people on the political left, they reject the hyphen too. Former speechwriter for Bill Clinton, Eric Liu, he says this, American is the noun, Chinese the adjective, or other, Chinese is one adjective. I am many kinds of American, after all. A politically active American, a short American, an earnest American, an educated American. Most style guys have come to agree with that assessment. The Associated Press, the New York Times, BuzzFeed, they all have dropped the hyphen in African-American, Asian-American, Mexican-American, etc. Parties, though, she doesn't want to drop it. The hyphen appeals to her. And as an immigrant myself, I get it. The phrase living in the hyphen, it helps you make sense of a life in America where you belong and you don't belong simultaneously. I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast Hyphenated. It's hosted by a couple of comedians, Jenny Lorenzo and Joanna Hausman, who you may have heard on this podcast. Well, that show is a week-by-week exploration of living in the hyphen. Joanna's Venezuelan-American, Jenny's Cuban-American. Okay, so Jenny, the reason why we started doing this podcast is because we always felt like we weren't 100% anything. I say Venezuelan-American, but then sometimes I feel like 100% Venezuelan. Sometimes I feel 100% American. Sometimes I'm like, you know, like a mix of mold or whatever. What is that? What, what was that accent, John? Padis mentioned the shorter Oxford English Dictionary, declaring way station to be one word. It was one of thousands of words, in fact, that have recently shed their hyphen. One editor in particular at the OED, a man by the name of Angus Stevenson, seemed especially down on the hyphen. In 2007, the dictionary bade farewell to 16,000 hyphens. He said the hyphen was, quote, messy-looking and old-fashioned. But there was a backlash in the possibly messy and old-fashioned form of letters to the New York Times. There were just floods of letters saying there's a hyphen thief on the loose, 16,000 words that had a hyphen, don't have a hyphen, and then you had the editor... Angus Stevenson saying the hyphen is dead, it's useless, and, and, you know, just an absolute uproar from hyphenophiles around the world. And by making such a proclamation, that undervalues the mighty power of the hyphen. Yes, it's true that it was gone from 16,000 words, but it had actually created new words. It had joined words. It had created new sounds and new words. And there were still hyphens now in newer words. And For him to declare the hyphen dead was also, I think, very significant for hyphenated individuals all over the world. So that probably explains the very loud outcry. We could do a whole episode about that moment. It was 
intense. But Pardis is right. It was sort of an existential moment for the hyphen, and it made people think about it in ways they'd never considered before. Which brings us back to perhaps the ultimate question hovering over the hyphen, the way station question. Or put another way, how the hyphen acts as a vehicle to take you from one state of being to another. Does that mean that, that any hyphenated word is, by its very nature, transitory, on its way to becoming uh, something else? You know, that's one way of looking at it, Patrick. I mean, I, I think you could say that, that it's a journey. I mean, we're all on a journey, right? And, and, and so the hyphen is bringing people on that journey. So yes, could it be that it's on the way to being something else? But, but I think we can't say that the hyphen is just a step towards an inevitable fusion because that's not always the case. And I think we have to remember that, like the cases of words like ice cream, which never became fused into one word. It just, the hyphen dropped. So I think that we have to think about the hyphen as part of a journey, but not a journey whose destination is known. Hadis Mardavi. She's the Dean of Social Sciences and a professor at the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. Her most recent book is called Hyphen. To see a photo of Pardis and her family, go to our website, subtitlepod.com. Our sound designer is Tina Toby. Thanks to Allison Reed and everyone at the Linguistic Society of America. Also to Allison Shaw, Barbara Bullock, Nicole Holliday, Lynn Murphy, Nina Porzuki, Jacqueline Toribio, Carol Zoll, and to Suzanne Wilson and Clarice Gar at Arizona State University. Drumroll, we have a newsletter. We'll be putting out a new one every two weeks. There'll be news on upcoming episodes. Also, I'll take on language issues in the news and some goofy stuff too. If you'd like to subscribe, go to our website, subtitlepod.com. Dot com or email us where at subtitlepod at gmail.com. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays and see you in the new year. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and spoke. Audio Collective.